We've been going through our Advent series. Uh, it's called King. Um, we've been working through, as Steve mentioned, stories in the Bible leading up to the coming of Jesus. Uh, the first week, we went all the way back to the garden, how there was this relationship that started between man and God in the garden, and then how it was broken, and then there was this longing that Adam and Eve felt for, to be back in the garden, to have that relationship with God again, and we feel that longing too as a human. There's that inside of us, that, that need for something more, something deeper. And then the next week, we talked about Abraham and Isaac and how Isaac uh, was this long-awaited son for Abraham in this promised line. And then they were, it was foreshadowing to the waiting, uh, for them to wait for the coming of another son, and his name was Jesus. And then last week, we talked about Mary and how this angel came uh, and, and told her, she, you're going to have a baby. And she's like, I'm a virgin. Like, this is crazy. And so there is this expectation that Mary expecting this child to come. And this child was going to be the Savior that we know as Jesus. And so now we're continuing this theme of going along up into the birth of Jesus. We're going to talk about the wise men in Matthew uh, 2, 1 to 12. And Lori and Derek did an awesome job of presenting that scripture. You might have saw that, that picture with the boat. And the three wise men, you're like, I don't remember that in the story. And so that's just a fun way to depict the wise men's journey uh, as they journey to Jerusalem and then eventually to Bethlehem. And so let's pray before we enter into Scripture and uh, into this message. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come and we can hear your word. We thank you that um, it breathes life into us. And Lord, we want to be uh, transformed by it. Lord, we want to be hearers of the word, but also doers. And so we pray as we listen and Lord, as uh, we engage with it. And Lord, we pray that our hearts would just be open. We want to be open to what you're speaking and to what you're saying. And we want to take what we've learned here. And Lord, we want to apply it to, to our lives outside of this place. And so... Lord, I pray you would just bless this time as we, uh, as we enter into your word. In your name we pray. Amen. So, Matthew is going to pop up here on the screen. If you don't have your Bibles or you don't have the Bible app on your phone, you can check it out right here. Maybe you forgot your phone or your Bible in the car. Not judging. It's all code. Like, uh, <laughs> it's going to be up here. And so, here we go. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star, and when it rose, and, 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 it came, and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, or Judah, and by, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I might go and worship him. And then, and after they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned their country by another route. Excuse me. 
Within these first couple of scripture verses, we get the characters of the story. We got Herod, we got the wise men, and we got Jesus. And so before we, we're going to talk about the wise men. Before we talk about the wise men, we know the wise men. We, have, we see them in our nativity scenes. Who has a nativity scene? Does anyone have a nativity scene? It's okay to raise your hand. It's cool. Let's all raise our hand if we've got nativity scenes. Yeah. Anyways, this is your classic nativity scene. We've got the angel. We've got the wise men. We've got the shepherds. Um, there's some fun nativity scenes out there, too. If you haven't seen, there's this one. Uh, it's got pop cans. Um, this is obviously in Mexico. Uh, you know, the Coca-Cola has the names on them. So we got Angel uh, or the angel. We got Jesus, Jesus. We got Jose, Joseph, and we got Miriam. And so... Obviously, they maybe couldn't afford the scene, but they could afford Coke, and so they made themselves a nativity scene. Then there's this one. Uh, this is the hipster nativity scene. We've got the, you know, the three wise men on segways delivering Amazon packages. Uh, we've got Mary and Joseph taking a selfie with baby Jesus. Uh, we've got, you know, uh, I guess the shepherd, he's on an iPad. And if you can see, the beef is 100% organic. And so very appropriate for today's age. And then we have more. There's this, people get creative. They make a meat one. This is maybe some guys who made this. We've got, we've got bacon. We've got sausage. We've got ham. It's, it looks so gross. Like. <laughs> but then we've got, we just got our classic nativity scene. Um, and so sad news about our nativity sets. The wise men weren't present at the birth. I know, you're crushed. Um, if you want to make it correct, maybe you can take the wise men and put them at like the furthest end of the house. And then each day, like slowly move them closer to the nativity set. But you have to keep your nativity set up for like six months in order for them to finally get to see Jesus. Um, also, some poor news about your nativity sets. Don't go home and throw them away. Or don't like throw them at me. Um, there was probably more than three wise men. You're like, what? What do you mean three wise men? They, there was a good chance that they, there was a lot more than three. So who were these wise men? Well, they're not actually called wise men. They're magi. But let's not get technical. But let's get technical. Um, the magi, the reason they were called wise men is because of this. They were considered wise since they, they could read the stars. They were like scholars. They were, they were smart guys. They could read the stars. You, for us, you're like, you're cuckoo today is what we would think. But they were, they were astrologers, like not the kooky stargazing club. Their titles indicate they were part of the Persian priestly ruling class. They would have studied the skies and nature, and they would have been greatly like respected. Like the term magi actually just means great. And so they had actually the great favor. They were looked upon as like top-notch people, not weird people. So how did they pull this all together? Like how did they know that the star was meant to be the this leading them to the Savior. So this is what we're going to get into a little bit. Persia is where many of the children of Israel had been sent into exile. And we know from the book of Daniel, like some of the greatest men of God were kept with wise men. People like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They would have no doubt, they would have shared the stories of the writings of Moses with the prophets with them in Persia. The writings of Moses and the prophets are full of prophecies about the Messiah. We've been going through this. We've been touching on Genesis and some of those uh, prophecies of the Messiah to come. In fact, there's, only, there's, only, there's one that these guys very likely would have heard, or they would have been continued told upon like, as they grew up, these wise men. And it's the story of Balaam from Numbers 23. And it goes like this. 
there was this enemy king, his name was Balak, and who was afraid of Israel, and he wanted to curse them. He wanted to put a curse upon these people. And at this moment, the Israelites, they're, they're journeying through the land to get to the promised land. And so the Moabites, they had this chance to like bless the Israelites, to show them some hospitality along this journey. But Balak, he's like, no, we're not doing that. We're going to curse them. Because he's heard stories about like what's been happening to, as the Israelites have been coming this way, and he's a little bit afraid. He's like, we need to curse these people. So he hires a prophet, Balaam, to do it. And this prophet, Balaam, you know, he's not like the prophet that we think of, like where he, his Lord is our Lord. He would have had a different God. In a sense, he was, he was a magician, which is amazing to think when we find out that God is going to use him to speak about a prophecy of the coming of the king. And so Balaam, who is, not a, very conscientious, who is a very conscientious prophet, he does it for the right price. He's like, I will curse them, but it's going to cost you double. I don't know. Maybe he's like doing some bartering. But God, he doesn't want it to happen. He's like, no, you're not going to curse these people. So he sends an angel to stand in Balaam's way so he can't do it. And the donkey sees the angel. He, Balaam's riding a donkey. And there's this angel standing with a sword in his hand. And in, the donkey sees it and it turns to the side to avoid it. Well, Balaam, he's like, what are you doing, donkey? And he beats the donkey. And eventually the angel moves on and continues. Or the donkey moves on and continues. For those who are thinking about calling PETA for this, like that's not a cool way to treat your animal. Balaam should have his donkey taken away. Uh, this is a story long ago, so you don't have to worry about that. But yes, shame on Balaam for spanking his donkey. Anyways, the angel with the sword reappears. But this time, he's standing in the middle of the road with two walls to the side, with a wall on each side. And the donkey veers out of the way again, and Balaam scrapes his knee. And so Balaam did what he did before. He, he slightly reproves his donkey of what it, the donkey has been doing. And then the story continues in Numbers 22, 26 to 31. It says, Then the angel of the Lord moved on ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no room to turn, either to the right or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, it laid down under Balaam, just laid down, just stopped. And Balaam he, was, Balaam, he was angry and beat it with his staff. Then the Lord opened the donkey's mouth, and it said to Balaam, What have I done to you to make you beat me these three times? And like, you would think, like, Balaam, he then responds. Like, that's not normal. Like, he just seems to go on and be like, just start talking to his donkey. We think Balaam's crazy, but he's not. And so Balaam answered the donkey, You have made a fool of me. If only I had a sword in my hand, I would kill you right now. It would be awesome to be a part of this conversation, to see Balaam talking to this donkey, and the donkey talking back, but obviously the angel. Then the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your own donkey, which you have ridden to this day? Have I been in the habit of doing this to you? He's like, Is this normal behavior for me, donkey, to be doing this to you, the master that I love? And he said, No, Balaam. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with his sword drawn, and so he bowed low and fell face down. And then Balaam, he opens his eyes. He sees the angel and he realizes the donkey saved his life. So instead of cursing Israel, he prophesied a blessing over Israel, Balaam did. Balaam says this in Numbers 24, 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. This meant a king.
that would, be, that would rule the whole world and bring blessing to all nations on earth was to come. This is the prophecy they would have heard of. This is what, how they would have known of the star be, uh, coming in the sky and that a king was to be born. So when he was in Persia, these wise men from Persia might have been familiar with this prophecy that, left them, that was left for them by Daniel. And when God causes this unusual heavenly activity in the sky and the stars, they're like, that's it. This is what we've been waiting for. This is, the king has been born. Let's go and see him. And so this is huge for us to understand. This is huge for us to, to really grasp that for some of the first people who want to come and worship Jesus, they aren't even Jews. They aren't even Jesus' people. The first people who come to worship Jesus and Matthew are pagan wise men. That's no accident. Matthew's last words in his gospel were the Great Commission. Go into all Gentile nations and preach the gospel. So Matthew bookends his gospel with a focus on the nations. The first people coming to worship, they were Gentiles, and he tells the people and his disciples as they go to go into all the nations and tell everybody about me to Gentiles. So the core of the gospel message is that Jesus has come for the nations. Jesus has come for all. He's come for everyone. And everyone needs to come to worship him, to recognize him as king. Jesus was not, a, he was not just a Jewish savior or an American savior, a Canadian savior. He is the only savior. He's the only one. There is no hope for forgiveness of sins and healing from the curse apart from him. There's no hope. And our task is not complete until people from every nation have come to worship him, to come and to recognize him as the king. Not even God's, Jesus' people were ready for this. And then we see this in the next section of scripture. After Herod heard this and was disturbed, it says all Jerusalem was up in arms. This is what it says. When Herod, King Herod heard that he was disturbed, when he heard this, he was disturbed. And all Jerusalem with him. We need to call together all the people's chiefs, priests, and teachers of the law. He asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will, lead, who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I might go and worship him too. So these Magi go and they meet Herod. And Herod is deeply disturbed by this. He's deeply distraught by what he's just heard, by this news. And as is Jerusalem, the whole, like, the nation of Jerusalem, they're just, they're disturbed by what they just heard. What do you mean a king? You know what's sad about this story? Jerusalem would have heard of the prophecies of their king coming. They would have known of the prophecies of their king who's going to come. They should have known of the prophecy about the star appearing. And that signifying their Savior was born. They should have known this. The Magi know about this. They know about this star being, it's going to come. It's going to signify Jesus is here. They're not Jews. And they see the star and they're like, the king of the Jews has been born. Let's go and worship him. Let's go. So they do the logical thing. Let's go to Jerusalem, home of the Jews. They will for sure know that the king is born. That's where he should be. 
The wise men would have simply known that the star signified that this king has come. They wouldn't have known of the prophecies in like Micah, because those were long ahead, and that was in Israel. They wouldn't have known that he was to be born in Bethlehem, but they would have known of what Numbers said when it was like, there will be a star and he will be a king. And so they arrive in Jerusalem, and they're like, hey, we saw the star, it was cool, and we are here to worship the king. Where is he? But they're like, Herod, and it's like, what do you, like, what do you mean? You must got the wrong kingdom. You made a wrong turn somewhere. Herod is like, like, what do you mean this king has been born? And everyone's up in arms. Everyone is shocked. Jesus' own people were not prepared when he came. What foreshadowing for his death? Jesus' own people didn't recognize him as king when he came in, and they didn't recognize him as king when he left, when they killed him. They, in fact, mocked him by putting the same phrase the Magi said, king of the Jews, over Jesus' head on the cross. Like, why didn't even the scholars, when Herod went to the scholars and he was like, what do you, like, this is what I've been told. Like, is this true? Like, why didn't the scholars and the teachers, the ones who've been studying it, get excited and be like, yeah, the king, he's been born. They didn't start, like, getting their stuff ready to go, the scholars, the teachers. These are chief priests and scribes. They know the promise. They're experts on, like, the Messiah who is to come. They know the scriptures deeply. See, like, look how quickly they answered Herod. Herod is like, where is the king going to be born? And they're like, well, it's easy. The prophet says this, in Bethlehem of Judea. But they're not gathering their stuff, the teachers. They're not, like, making a beeline to Bethlehem. They're not searching the sky for the star. Bethlehem to Jerusalem isn't that far of a hike for these religious leaders. Like the Magi had made the longest hike from far, far away. In fact, even upon giving the news, we see nothing in Scripture to indicate that these scholars were, and teachers were even moved at all. Like what happened to them? Like what, how can you be trained to know like the, the word and the truth about it and be unmoved by it? And this is a big thing for us to take home. A scary place to be is to know the Bible, but miss Jesus. How can I explain this in our context? Um, I dare to say probably like 80, maybe 90% of everybody in here has Facebook or maybe Twitter or maybe Instagram. I would dare to say that if you have one of those uh, social networks that you have done something we like to call stalking, uh, Facebook stalking, maybe you've said something like this guy up here. It's not Facebook stalking. It's like internet research. I'm just studying this person to get to know about them. And so, I don't need to like, have like a hands like, yeah, I've done that. I can see on your face that you've done it. And so this is, we are drawn into belief that we know some of these people that we maybe go and check out their Facebook pages. And we talk as like we have a relationship with them. Like we know because we know facts about them. Like I know facts about this person. Like, oh yeah, John, he just went to Mexico and with him and his wife and his kids. And yeah, they went hiking and surfing. It looked like it was a great trip. And John, yeah, he believes, like, Trudeau's government should, like, need to do this to help the economy. How do you know that? You know, Twitter, obviously. And so, so we know a lot about people, but we, without knowing people, though, we might not actually really even know them. And this is a huge problem because you feel like you know everything about someone 
through social media, because maybe we have a certain stories that we can draw from of, or maybe we can make assumptions off those stories, or maybe something they've posted, and we heard like, that they've done this, but we've not actually met the person, like talked with them, had a deep conversation with them. And for us, we don't want to be in a space where we know a lot about Jesus without knowing Jesus. Like, we know he was born. Where he was born? He's like, oh yeah, he was born in Bethlehem, a nice little town. Yeah, he fed, like, some fish and to loaves to some people, like, like a billion people. Like, it was amazing. We know some of the good works. We know, like, how well, like, maybe they played in that game, this person that we've been looking at. But we don't know them. And you see this painfully in this text. The people of Jerusalem know, but they don't know. We must be on guard against getting overly familiar with, like, divine things. Because when you get overly familiar, when you don't meditate and think about what you're taking in and dwell on the magnificence of Jesus and who he is, we can become maybe a little bit indifferent to it. So we have these men who are experts in the scripture who get news from King Herod. Hey, apparently the king of the Jews has been born. Where would I find him? Oh, it's easy. Micah 5 says he'll be in Bethlehem. But yet they don't move. Move. They they know it, but they don't know it in their hearts. They're not transformed by it. And this is an ongoing problem for many of the Pharisees, chief priests and scribes in the first century. In fact, John 5, starting in verse 39, Jesus says to a group of them, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is that they bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I love this text because of the discussion that it has. He says, you study the scriptures in vain because you're going to the scriptures because you think the scriptures will give you life. And yet the scriptures are telling you, I give you life. Jesus gives you life. And yet you won't come to me to have that life. We are called to know the truth and to act on the truth. Like, I know a lot of biblical truths. I know a lot of things the Bible calls me to do. Maybe you're hearing me speak, and you're like, wow, this guy knows Jesus. He knows a lot about the Bible, and he's funny. And, like, how old is he, though? Like, is he, like, 20? Like, <laughs> I'm up here to tell you, my knowledge is to define me knowing Christ. What defines my relationship with him is what I, know, what I do with what I know, what I do with what I've heard, what I do with what I've seen. The question is, what do I do with these truths? What do I do with them? And James is very, very clear with what followers of Jesus are to be. It says, James in 1.22, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. That's pretty clear. Hearers, we like, we hear it, it's good, we got it. This is another notch, I got another star, I got some more knowledge. But hearing is awesome. But what are we doing with what we've heard? What are the, the, these teachers, they've not done anything with what they've heard. They've heard the Messiah has come, and they're like, yeah, that's cool. We want to know Jesus, but to Christ, knowing isn't having a good idea of Bible stories. Knowing is how you respond to these stories, what they cause you to do. And so this is a great question to ask. Do I know a lot about Jesus, or do I know him? Knowing this truth should cause us to be active, should cause us to be stirred. 
the scholars, they should have been thrilled with the news that they've heard. This has happened. This is what we've been waiting for. A savior is born for Jerusalem. A king. But they don't even move. So, after all this hoopla, we start to get to the end of this section of Scripture. The Magi are tasked now to find Jesus. They're tasked to find him. It says this, After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. When they opened their treasures and presented him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to the country by another route. So we get to kind of understand the other character of this story a bit more, this Herod guy. Seems like Herod, you know, he has good intentions. He's like, you know, find the king, then come back and report him to me. I want to worship him too. But later at the end of this scripture, and even as we continue past this, we see that Herod had no intention to do that. He wanted to find the king, he wanted to, he wanted to find Jesus, and he wanted to kill him. Why? This is why. Herod, he wasn't even Jewish, but was appointed to be king of the Jews by the Romans. So that title wasn't his to bear. So when he would have heard the Magi said this, we have come to worship the one who was born king of the Jews, Herod knew the person that rightfully should be in the seat, he has come. This means my time is coming to an end. But he liked being king. He wanted to be king of his life. Sometimes we feel like Herod. We don't want to let Jesus be king. We are afraid to do it because you know, we're comfortable with what we're leading. We, maybe we like what we're doing. But we get this picture of Jesus, the rightful king, who is one full of peace and love and joy and hope, the one who guides us, the one who is going to rightfully, rightfully deserves to be king in our lives. But he's not going to forcefully do it. And so Herod, he wanted to destroy him. And Herod, he was a brutal dude. He cared about power. He cared about himself. Herod had big temples and palaces built with his name all over them. He loved what he had and was bent on keeping his power and was paranoid by losing it because if he knew, he knew he wasn't the king of the Jews. It was never rightfully his title. So he did unspeakable things, like he had his wife killed. Because he thought she was conspiring against him. And for good measure, you know what? I'll kill her mother and brother too. Then a few years later, he would kill the three sons of his son, so his grandsons, because he thought the same thing. When he was running low on money, he created harsh new laws to get more money. Once he was short on money, he had the 45 wealthiest people, uh, citizens executed on trumped-up char charges so he can get their, their estates, so he can continue on building his name, his power. He can continue to be king, not over just the Jews, but king in his life. But not just that. Half of every citizen had to pay 50% tax to whatever they did. So, and then 12.5% on top of that for Caesar. And so if you were a fisherman and you came off of the sea with your, your big catch, you had to hurry up and give 50% to Herod. There was a tax collector there. And then you had to give another 12.5% to Caesar. And then on top of that, you know, taxpayers got, tax collectors got to get paid. And so he takes a little bit for himself too. 
And so you're taxed 75%. Listen, I'm happy I'm not taxed 75% today. And we say amen. Can I get an amen on that? Amen. Here we go. In short, he was a bad dude. Herod put his hope simply in himself. We see this in our life too. Sometimes we see the same outcome when we put our hope in ourselves. There's pain. There's dissatisfaction. Maybe there's a little bit of destruction. Maybe even, you know, we, there's 10. We don't hurt people like Herod hurts people. But when we're looking after ourselves, we hurt their, how they feel, their emotions. The great thing is, is this story isn't about Herod. It's about Jesus. Let's imagine as I begin to close this here. Let's imagine we're the magi. You can put your imagination caps on. You can close your eyes. If they're already closed, you know, just keep them closed. <laughs> but no, I'm just kidding. Um, but let's imagine we're the magi. Their journey wasn't a simple journey. It took time. And these magi, they were so confident that this was the king that they didn't even want to wait until he took the rule of the kingdom. They're like, we need to go see him right now. They were so confident that he was the one. And so this journey to him could have took six, seven months to Jerusalem to see the Savior, to see the one, only to reach Jerusalem and then have to travel more to Bethlehem to find the king. Then on this trek to Jerusalem, the wise men, they almost certainly traveled by day and slept in tents by night. They would have dealt with the hot sun and the dust. They would have had blisters and sore muscles. Then they would have thirst, and they would have had all the discomforts of a long journey. Like that hike I went on for a day, that's like all the time for them. I wonder if the wise men ever questioned their journey during the nights when the sky was maybe dark, starless, and God seemed distant. I wonder if they'd ever had doubts during the days when the sun was hot and the path was dusty, and they belonged, and they longed for just a drink. We know that they kept on going, determined to worship the infant king. Now, I'm sure the people around them thought the wise men were crazy. Like, what do you mean? They just dropped everything for this journey to take a long and expensive and uncomfortable journey to see this baby, to see this baby. Why would they do this? Why would the wise men do this? The wise men were hoping to find the king who was to bring an end to war, an end to suffering, an end to injustice. They were hoping to find the king who would bring everlasting joy and peace to this world. That's what they were hoping for, they were longing for. And when they heard it, they just couldn't contain themselves. They had to go. Because they would have felt the injustice. They would have felt the suffering. They would have felt the war. They were hoping that this was the king to end it all. This was the one that they've been looking for. They had put all their hope in this person. They knew his reign wouldn't just be for Jerusalem, but it would go beyond that. And they finally reached Jerusalem. Surely this is where the king is. Surely we're finally here. We have made it. And I'm sure they're thrilled because the, the king has been bored and they are met with surprise though. They're asking everyone. They're like, where is the king? Where is the king? Because it says they, like Jerusalem was disturbed. You know, you don't just disturb a whole nation by asking two or three people. You're asking a lot of people. You're going to everyone. They're overjoyed trying to find the king. Where is this king? Where is this king? Where is this king? Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For he, we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. We're here. 
Now, they didn't just upset Herod. It was everyone. They were like, whoa, what do you mean king? Jerusalem, everyone wondering, what is this going on? And so we asked this question. We were looking for something, but it's a little bit different when we ask it. May we ask, when is this going to end when we're looking for something? When will it just work out for me? Like, nothing's working out for me. Like, why is this my life? Why is this happening to me? Like, is there more than this? What's going on? But nobody in Jerusalem knew what they were talking about. Everyone was flabbergasted. Everyone was like, what do you mean? King Herod didn't like what he heard. And he didn't know of this king being born also. At this point, the Magi are probably thinking, we've journeyed a long time. All hope is lost. What, are we, what were we doing? Everything we traveled for, it hadn't arrived. Did we really see that star? Was it right? Was it really, was it right? But then Herod calls in the priests and they're like, yes, this prophecy is true. And this king is to be born in Bethlehem. Can you imagine their hope is being restored again? They see the star again and it leads directly to Bethlehem, not just to Bethlehem, but to the house where Jesus is, right directly over it. Some of us today are like these magi. You're hoping to find the thing that will restore peace in your soul. You're hoping to find joy and everlasting love. You're hoping to find something that will calm your worries. You've been on a journey looking and hoping to find something that will bring you this peace in life. The words, oh holy night, just ring in my head. Long lay the world in sin and air pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. Jesus is here to bring rest to the weary. And some of you maybe feel, I, I feel weary today. Weary just means extreme tiredness. You feel like you've been overworked. You feel like you can't do it anymore. You have a weary soul. Jesus is what we need to come to. He is the hope. He is the thrill of hope for our soul. I just want to invite Jesse up as we close and we sing. At each moment during their journey, or during our journey, hoping to find things maybe we're missing, you think of, how can, we, how can I find this thing that I'm hoping for? Maybe we put our hope like in Herod did, in the things of this world. But the world, the things of the world, they melt away. For those who know Christ, you've been walking with him and hoping for answers. You feel like the Magi. The journey has been long. You're like, I know you, Jesus. I know you're real. I'm journeying. I'm trying to find you. I'm trying to see where you're taking me. But, I, you know, it's been long. It's been dry. I've got blisters. And you've questioned. But you can continue to put your hope in the one you're pursuing. Because Jesus, he provides in that journey. If we can see one thing the Magi taught us about faith— it's to continue to pursue Jesus. And as we pursue him, our focus is on heavenly things and we find fulfillment within him. The story of the Bible, it speaks to us. There was a longing in creation for it, had, for it to have once, what it once had when God walked the earth. It was told that there would be one who would come to restore all that was lost. It left them waiting. Then waiting was, this waiting was coming to an end. Finally, it was coming to an end. Mary was pregnant with the Messiah, expecting him. And it left everyone hoping that it was. We have a longing for something more in our lives. 
We wait to find this thing that we long for. We expect to find it. We think it's in things. We think it's in people. Sometimes you may think it's in money. But what we are hoping for is in Jesus. They knew this was the Messiah. So the question is, what are we putting our hope in? What are we putting our hope in today? And we can respond three ways. We can respond like Herod. We cannot like the news and still try to be king of our lives. Herod has everything because he has power. So he has hope in himself. We're like, I'm good. Or we can be like the religious leaders. We know what it says and be like, I don't need Jesus. You know, I, I'm comfortable. I know who Jesus is. I'm fine with that. Jesus said a lot of these type of people, like these teachers, these scribes who know him, but don't know him. They say it's hard for them to get into heaven. Or we can be like the wise men, and we can realize, this is who I've been searching for, looking for, hoping for, where all hope, joy, peace, and life are. And as the wise men lay down their gifts for Jesus, we can lay down our life for him, recognizing him as the thing we're looking for. He is our hope. He is everything we're looking for. I'm just going to close in prayer. Are you going to stand with me? Father, you are everything we need. Lord, we don't want to be like Herod. We don't want to be like the teachers and the scribes. We want to be like the wise men, journeying towards you, searching, knowing that you're there, and realizing once we found you, we know you're there, that we can, we can lay down everything at your feet. You're, you're the thing we're hoping for. You're the thing that we were longing for. You were the thing we were waiting for. You were the thing we were expecting. And it's everlasting, never ceasing, always alive. So we thank you that at this time, as we are celebrating the coming of you, waiting for it, that it's everything that we ever need. Thank you, Jesus.